0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Fago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Higher than expected inflation figures have sharpened recession fears, driving Wall Street to close down 1.6% on the week, and the S&P 500 having lost a quarter of its value since the start of the year. The Fed is again expected to raise rates. Ukraine's stellar performance against Russia has some investors erroneously believing the conflict is over and the outlook for defense firms less rosy as a result. After her plan to both sharply cut taxes, Taxes and increased government spending damage Britain's financial credibility. Prime Minister Liz Truss replaced Kwasi Kwarteng as chancellor with Jeremy Hunt. She not only made a complete U-turn, but Hunt now says that taxes would have to be raised and spending sharply cut. We discuss what this means for British defense spending. One of the nation's leading commercial aviators, legendary pilot Sully Sullenberger, added his voice to those opposing certification waivers for Boeing 737 MAX and United is interested in more wide-body jets. Takeaways from the Association of the United States Army's annual conference and trade show and a discussion on the financial implications of the national security strategy unveiled by the Biden administration uh, last week. Joining us today, as they do every week, to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Ablafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in sunny Washington DC. Guys, welcome to the program. Great to be here, Vargo. Thanks. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Vargo. Thank you.
1: Happy Sunday, Vargo. Great
0: to be on. Uh, Indeed, and it's great to have everybody back together again. So that's uh, it's always a treat. Uh, Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage. Overall, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications. Sponsors our command and control coverage and our AUSA coverage was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus and our producer, Chris Cervello, who cleared the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful uh, weekly look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much uh, again for joining us. Uh, Ron, uh, broader market, right? We saw that the market was, was down overall. S&P had a, has had a tough ride this year, um, all driven by inflation concerns. And again, we've seen inflation creep up. Uh, the expectation is Fed's going to raise rates again. And there are some investors who believe uh, that some of the statements made by Vladimir Putin last week suggest that the Ukraine war is over and hence defense isn't a good bet. Erroneously, walk us through some of the major storylines of the week and how they shaped uh, how investors looked at the defense and aerospace group overall
2: yeah it was it was uh, another another volatile week in the group uh, maybe I'll start with the thing we like to look at to measure volatility is the VIX index and the VIX index ended the week at 32. that's at the high end of this range it's been you know somewhere between sort of 15 and 32 and the VIX is an indicator of, of volatility some people call it the fear index but more more precisely it just really measures volatility in the market um the S&P for the week was down about a percent and if you look across the 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 group to give you a feel, let's go walk through some of the larger cap names. Boeing was up about half a percent. Um, it was basically the best performer in the group uh, for the week. General Dynamics was down about a percent and a half. Uh, Transdime, and I'll tell you why I'm bringing that up in a moment, was down four percent. Lockheed was down four and a half percent. Northrop Grumman was down almost seven and a half percent. Um, this is the Spac index, right? That kind of measures the performance of the uh, those companies that were bought public in the last eighteen to twenty-four months through the back process, it was down two and a half percent. It's had a had a really tough year. A lot of moving parts here. One on Thursday, uh, the consumer price index came out. It was at eight point two percent. The core piece of that was much higher than than people thought, which is you know, you know leading the market to believe that you'll see the Fed raise again. Uh, I think an interesting thing to look at something I like to look at is the social security adjustment. So for 2023, the social security adjustment is going to be 8.7%. That's, you know, know, if you just think about what's the government thinking, that a basket of goods is going to cost more if you're on social security, Uh, 8.7% in 2023. So that's, that's a big number. Oil end of the week, uh, WTI at at 86 Brent at 91 on average. So kind of back to those, you know, back to the defense names Uh, and and other names. The market isn't liking companies that have a lot of debt, even if the fundamentals of the companies are spectacular. If you have have a bigger bloated balance sheet, um, the market isn't crazy about that. That's why I brought up Transdime, one of the really, really darling names in the group that has a fantastic business model for all kinds of reasons we could go into, but it also has a big balance sheet. Um, So we're seeing volatility in the names that have a, a, a balance sheet, and then we saw the defense names meaningfully underperformed later in the week. So, so a lot of that had to do with um, Vladimir Putin stating that he was nearly done mobilizing forces. My humble opinion, I think the market misread that. But you saw that the defense, and we'll talk about that later, the defense stocks you know, get, get hit on, on that. So there's there's a lot of moving pieces um, going on. Um, and I think as we go in, you know, through the end of the year, you'll continue to see this volatility in the market driven by, you know, inflation fears, growth fears, and what increasing interest rates ultimately
0: are going to mean right. for the US and global economy. I, I you know, I, I still think that it's fascinating how uh, everybody on the market is behaving. Recessions are sort of a natural part of life. It's happening. We've, ex- you know what I mean? It, the, the Sturm and Drang that sort of goes with it uh, is is sort of fascinating, as if like this is a completely unprecedented thing. Yeah, I mean, we were in a long protracted era of very cheap money, and we haven't had a you know significant downturn uh, since uh, 2008, right? I mean, throughout you know, COVID was was rough, but you know, for, you know what I mean. So it's kind of interesting that there's so much but oh I think, but associated th- with this. I think
2: one one point I might add, and I think this is something the market might be digesting. And this was brought up by our own strategy group at, at, at Bank of America. We might be moving into a regime where you know, we were at this you know, 2% inflation rate world, very low interest rates, that we might be shifting to a 5% world. And that's where we are for the next 20 years. And right. what does that mean? And how does everybody adjust to it? And ultimately, everything will adjust to it. It's just you go through right. that transit period where it just takes time to everybody to reset what they used to
0: think. Well, and also, right. I mean, we're also deglobalizing, decoupling, right? I mean, there are a lot of implications and and behind the scenes, you, know, you know what I mean? There are a lot of complexities to this equation that go just beyond sort of right the financial performance and the interest rates and supply chain catch up, right? I mean it's a more complicated global dynamic that we're going into that, you know, drives us away from cheap money. For sure. It's very complicated. Right. Absolutely. Uh, Sash, uh, let me bring you into this. It was interesting. AUSA was last week. Great opportunity to connect with friends from around the world. Uh, and a uh, U- European friend of mine sort of quipped like, ah, I guess the war is over with. And, uh, you know, uh, because, uh, you know, just like stocks here, we're getting beaten up. I think his company stock was <laughs> a little bit beaten up last week. Uh, give us we're going to talk about uh, Liz Truss and her U-turn U- 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 and the longevity of her Administration and what Jeremy Hunt's statements mean uh, in a minute, but sort of give us sort of the macro picture on how the group performed last week and what were Um, the drivers and whether or not this erroneous Ukraine storyline was driving uh, European investors as well.
3: Yeah, look, I mean, it was defense stocks were off four to five percent, BA Systems off five percent, Rheinmetall off uh, about five percent last week. Um, and interestingly, Rolls Royce was flat. Rolls Royce can never quite de- decide at the moment whether it's a civil or a defence stock. Um, Airbus up uh, about three percent. Safran up, uh, uh, you know, a couple of percent as well. So, you know, th- there was definitely evidence of investors switching from defence to civil. Um, and it, you know, it was, a, it was a positive switch into civil rather than civil just not performing and defence underperforming. You know, the civil stocks were were up in absolute terms, and it, it's we haven't seen this sort of relatively aggressive rotation uh, for oh, you know, a quarter or so now. So it was a, it was a very, very interesting um, week in that regard. There's no doubt that, you know, that there's a mixture of investors in defense stocks. There are long-only investors who have been invested, particularly in some of the mid-cap stories, for a very, very considerable time. And then there are investors who came into defense relatively new this year. In some cases, they you know, picked individual stocks. In other cases, they definitely just bought everything that had defence in it and thought they'd sort it out you know, later once the direction of the war was apparent. And uh, yeah, there's been a bit of a panic this week. Um, I mean, our view, as you know, yours, is that this is wholly erroneous. One, the war is not over. I mean, the war is brutal. Um, you know, it is attritional in the South and, you know, it's got, it's, it's another stalemate is developing in the, in the East and Northeast again, and until hopefully touching wood, they, you know, the Ukraine break it, but this is a very, very attritional, uh, war uh, or phase, and that's likely to be made worse in the short term by the Russian mobilization, not better. Uh, and the fact that Russia is firing still huge numbers of missile missiles into Ukraine and causing an immense amount of damage to civilian um, uh, real estate is, um, you know, that's an ongoing problem. Most interesting report I read this week was in a German um, uh, magazine, which talked about German stocks of ammunition. Now, I'm not convinced entirely by the the source of, of this magazine, but it talked about German stocks of ammunition having come down from about five days of War usage. Put that in perspective, that's probably for artillery ammunition between 200 and 250 rounds a day. So, you know, a total of about a thousand to, let's say, 1,000 to 1,500 rounds per gun, down to two to three days of, um, supply. So, you know, down to between 500 and 700 rounds per gun. Um, When we look at the rates of Ukrainian and Russian usage of of ammunition, even the NATO standard uh, metrics are are underestimates. And and NATO has a target that countries should be holding 30, three zero days of ammunition. Well, clearly Germany isn't. So take a step back. Even if the war ended tomorrow, Germany would have to restock and restock big. the UK would have to restock. You know, we, we have given away immense quantities of our MLRS uh, ammunition, 155, and now we're starting to give Amram's away as well. Um, the restocking period, just given the, the the rate of production by the manufacturers, is measured in multiples of years. Um, so we we think this this um, you know the war is over, cell defence stocks, just misses the fact that actually very few orders have been placed so far. And the restocking period is of going to be a very, very deep, pers- uh, persistent one.
0: Um, it, it was uh, an interesting storyline, and I have to tell you that some of the European friends I talked to would, would concur with that: two or three days of ammunition for Germany, uh, and you know that France is, um, you know, but you know, under two weeks. Uh, in, in because everybody was investing in systems and not in the munitions and not in the right kinds of munitions uh, and long-range strike uh, and precision strike capabilities, which is a forte of the United States. We spoke last week uh, to the Army under-secretary Gabe Camarillo, who did talk uh, about what the Army is doing on existing contracts to try to replenish these stocks and, and try to do them with some alacrity. Sash, I want to ask you about the U-turn uh, that uh, the Trust uh, Administration has just made and extraordinarily that, that the new Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, uh, is, does not appear necessarily to be on the exact same page with his uh, prime minister, noting that Kwasi Kwarteng is the second shortest uh, lived uh, uh, chancellor uh, at 38 days in Macleod, uh, Sadly, it was 30 days, but he had, as, a, as you mentioned uh, before we taped, um, that a good excuse, he unfortunately passed away uh, in 1970. Um, talk to us more broadly about what this U-turn means. But then what it means for defense spending, and I don't mean to come across as criticizing or not being supportive of 3% of GDP for defense. I am. Britain needs it and could put it to good global use. But the reality is, when you're talking about raising taxes and sharply cutting government spending, uh, and there are you know story after story, if you follow the British press, or about the NHS, the hollowing out of government as it is you know, having greater defense investment may not be on the minds of many voters. Kind of walk us through what this shift means and what this shift actually could mean for defense spending and whether or not the outlook is and can remain as rosy as people would like it, including everybody on this call.
3: Yeah. Okay. Um, Right. So just a couple of couple of minor corrections. It wasn't a U-turn by the Truss administration. It was a U-turn by Liz Truss herself. And it's been a ghastly week for U- the UK, the UK government, and Liz Truss, uh, personally. We're at a situation now where she has performed so appallingly this week that she is Prime Minister in name only. Um, and I'm going to say every week until she goes, because I don't think I'd get absolutely long, I'd be surprised if she lasts the week. Certainly, you know, has she got a couple of weeks in her? Perhaps. But I've never seen a weaker Prime Minister in office, which is this profoundly depressing thing to see, but she's out of her depth she gave perhaps the worst press conference of any prime minister ever um luckily it was a very short one but it was utterly it was dreadful um she's on her way out it's only a matter of time but the u-turn this week was um uh deep and brutal um she uh, you know she started the week um very 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 tied to her chancellor and vice versa they were going to cut every single tax under the sun um, effectively cut them unfunded in the hope that the Laffer curve would come to, come, come to uh, the UK's aid and miraculously generate some, some growth and greater tax takes. The markets hated it. Um, and they were forced, first of all, into a U-turn on one tax and then another. And then she sacked quasi uh, Kwarteng as chancellor. Jeremy Hunt um, has come in. He's, he's effectively the prime minister. He's the guy who matters. She doesn't. She is um uh, she has very very she has no power in cabinets anymore utterly brutal um and he's doing what every chancellor in the uk has always done which has has been to say nobody is allowed to spend anything i'm going to keep ch- control of all the purse strings i'm going to raise the money because that's what the chancellor does um and you you guys you spending departments have all got to produce efficiency savings or, or or worse every Chancellor has done this since I was born and actually the previous 300 400 years as well um, you know th- th- this is what chancellors of the Exchequer in the UK do they they're incredibly powerful figures they are more powerful in many respects than than finance ministers in Europe and with respect you don't really have an equivalent in in, in, in the US so how do we read Hunt's uh rhetoric he's he's serious he's he's a he's a serious player He performed very, very well on the Sunday programs today. Um, uh, You know his interviews. You could sense there's sort of an adult in the room again, and that's a that's a bit of a reassurance, frankly. Um, He's going to ask. You know, uh, is the UK going to go for three percent of uh, GDP on defence? Not in the next couple of years. Not in the next five years. Probably it's a it's an aspiration, and it's an aspiration for or beyond the end of the decade. The problem with defence spending is that, I mean, it's a lovely target for chancellors of the Exchequer to attack because it's it's a big spending department, a lot of what it spends on is capital, and also defence does such a really lousy job, in general, of managing the purse strings, that it's, um, the Treasury hates it, always have done, always will do. But defense spending tends to be non-discretionary you spend it only when you have to because nobody wants to spend on it and we're in the we're in a situation at the moment where a lot of defense spending is becoming non-discretionary rather than discretionary um, so I think he will find it harder to cut defense than he thinks particularly because Ben Wallace is Secretary of State for defense and Ben Wallace is the only other cabinet minister who is unsullied by this dreadful affair and whose reputation, Wherever you look is very, very high indeed. So I guess that my guess would be that Ben Wallace will um, say, "Yeah, thanks, but no thanks." You know, we actually have a water water fight. Will defence spending go up uh, anytime soon? Probably not. But is is it actually going to be cut, or is it just going to be cut relative to some slightly feverish expectations? The latter is more likely. Just one final point uh, that I think that Jeremy Hunt, as fa- as the de facto prime minister, uh, is going to have to deal with is that. Um, the UK government has already launched a review of the um, uh, the defence review that we had uh, a year and a half back. That was widely considered, and that was very much a pre-Ukraine uh, defence review and uh, didn't take into account any of the lessons that we are painfully relearning and the Ukrainians even more so. Um, I think when that defence review comes out, probably sometime next year, and remember Ben Wallace will be uh, issuing that, I think that will that will... You know, add to the tension between defence and the treasury that occurs in every single budget in the UK.
0: Richard, uh, normally at this point you interject with a whole bunch of commercial news, and there is uh, are some headlines that I'd like to hit, but that we can do a little more briefly. Uh, you're also a national security guy and a, a proud King's College uh, graduate in war studies. Um, the Biden administration just released its national security uh, strategy. What did you and Ron want to get your sense on on how potentially this drives um, you know, u.S defense spending and what you guys thought, right? I mean, for many people, Not much new here, Uh, you know, aside from what the administration already was doing, prioritizing uh, China, you know, obviously this was delayed because of the war. Uh, Jake Sullivan made that clear. Sort of give us your sense on how you think this affects sort of the overall spending picture uh, in any way or what you spotted as being nuanced. Obviously we're waiting for the national defense strategy, uh, the uh, nuclear posture review and the like, both of which could could be a little more uh, revelatory, but go ahead. Uh, uh, Richard, sort of start us off on what you uh, spotted in this you know, relatively brief uh, but thoughtful document.
1: Yeah, uh, it was kind of interesting. And I think it's one of the things that fed into what Ron quite rightly flagged as uh, investor concerns about uh, what's going on uh, in the war in, uh, in Ukraine. Um, you know, I agree completely with, with Ron and Sash and, and pretty much everyone else that no, this is a long way from over. And uh, the idea that they've stopped uh, after mobilizing a couple hundred thousand and uh, that that means we're out of the woods is complete nonsense. But I think there might be a perception and uh, obviously Ron is closer to this, but there's this perception perhaps out there that as uh, Catholics at the Pentagon put it, you know, China is the pacing threat, Russia is the acute threat. So it's like, wow, two big threats. There is this feeling, I think, by a lot of people that uh, Russia turns out to be the clown car of threats. It's going to take a while. It's horrible to have to live through this in Ukraine. Uh, obviously, it's, it's a national trauma, but this ends pretty much only one way. Probably sometime by the end of the year, the complete eclipsing of Russia as any kind of serious strategic power, whether it's because they've expended their munitions, whether it's because of hellish losses, maybe because of internal revolt. I don't know. But this is not going to be driving defense perceptions. Restocking, as Sash rightly points out, that's going to take a long time because of low NATO stocks. But nevertheless, this narrative that there were two major geopolitical threats out there that were changing the strategic environment heavily in favor of defense. Well, as the the national security document points out, it's, it's really China. China is the pacing and, and possibly acute for all we know, right, threat. Right. But it's just about China. And that I think might have maybe... Changed investor sentiment, just possibly, or at least the broader public sentiment, um, because in so many ways, Russia is being kind of marginalized as any kind of serious long-term strategic power.
0: Um, Ron, what was your sense, and what were investors asking you uh, about? Um, you know the the NDAA and how it shaped. Uh, excuse me. Uh, the uh, national security strategy and how it's, uh, you know, should be shaping perceptions or could be shaping both perceptions, but programs actually.
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't think in the investment community, there were many surprises that came out of it. I mean, the fo- with large focus on, on China, we, we are already kind of knew that. Um, and, you know, the, the, you know, like Richard mentioned, I mean, it really did um, demarcate between Russia and China and the differences between them. Um, there was a, a focus on um, cybersecurity in it. Um, I don't think that really surprised anybody. Um, uh, uh, an increased focus on you know Chinese foreign direct investment in the U.S. that might have surprised people. Although I didn't, I didn't get many questions on it. Um, so I mean, on, on that on that front, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think it really changed anybody's views on much um, because it's been it was in line with sort of where, where things have been going anyway. Um, and the national defense strategy is not out yet. So, I mean, it'll, I think investors will probably be very interested in see what that means, because the national defense strategy will probably be, you know, one step closer to what it means for programmatics and, and et cetera.
0: Uh, let me uh, ask uh, just a, a double question and get everybody's uh, take on this because it's not national security uh, r- related as well. Um, Ron, the, you know, President Biden, you know, I mean, obviously Washington on a bipartisan level is very frustrated with Saudi Arabia. Obviously, we discussed the OPEC plus uh, decision last week where where the Saudis and the Russians led a charge uh, on, you know, cutting production uh, to drive up uh, oil prices. Um, you know, Washington had... Uh, pled, uh, European governments had pled uh, with uh, oil producing nations, and they basically got those brushed off. Um, So a lot of frustration in Europe, as well as frustration in the United States. And President Biden said that there would be retaliation against the Saudis. Saudis responded by giving 400 million, you know, for siding with the Russians. Um, uh, Saudis gave $400 million or pledged $400 million in aid to Ukraine. That doesn't appear to be mollifying Washington. And Chris Coons, uh, the uh, Democratic senator from Delaware and confidant of the president said that there are likely to be uh, uh, arms exports uh, cut uh, to Saudi Arabia or 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 sharply impacted. Um, You know what what kind of impact does that have? Given that Saudi Arabia is a a major, um, obviously, customer for American weapons. which was kind of in the doghouse for a couple of years anyway, in, in the wake of the Khashoggi affair and in the wake of uh, the, the the Yemen war. I mean, it, you know, what, what kind of impact does that have as you guys have looked at that? And Sash, I want to get your sense just to like prime you for the next question. You know, what are the implications for the UK, which is also a major weapons exporter, along with a lot of other European countries, right? I mean, so if we cut them off, does everybody go to Britain or is Britain equally, you know, annoyed and, and would have some, some impact, but uh, Ron, I want to get your take first. Yeah, it's, it's a good question.
2: I think it's um, a two investors, a scarier headline than actually a fundamental. Um, so, you know, Saudi, if you look at Saudi's imports of weapons, I think the U S accounts for about roughly 80% of it. And it, it varies from year to year. It can be lumpy. Um, and then, if you look at you know the the total um, number of of, of imports um, between you know FMS sales and direct commercial sales, um, the number itself relative to the the U.S. budget is is actually pretty small. So I think if you look in the period from 2008 to 2018, on an annual basis, recurring. Um, on average, um, it's about a billion and a half per year, to Saudi, um, some years more, some years less, obviously, depending on, you know, what sales are going on. So it's, it's a, it's a number, it's material, but if you normalize that by the, you know, the call it roughly 300 billion of the investment accounts or 850 billion of the U S defense budget, it's really not all that big. Um, if you look at, you know, a, a company. For example, like Raytheon Technologies, where through their defense division, uh, legacy, you know, Raytheon, RTN, Raytheon. I think at one point, um, at its highest, Saudi was maybe maybe five percent of Raytheon sales, and that was a while back. It's less right. than that today. And then when you when you add in all the commercial stuff, it's it's just a small piece of right. uh, the whole the whole industry. So on a on a fundamental level. It's really not that big a deal, but the headline looks worse. And it's one of those things you'd expect like a CNBC to like, you know, start screaming, Oh, U S isn't going to, you know, export weapons to, to
0: um, Saudi. But in reality, when you pull back the fundamentals on it, it's really not that big a deal. Well, and, and the Saudis have said, well, if you don't sell it to us, we'll go to China and Russia. And there are people in Washington who are saying, go ahead. see how well that'll work for you. But, um, but, but the reality uh, is i that...
2: if if they're getting 80% of their weapons from us
0: and we were to just stop Right. All right. Good luck. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's just. Exactly. From your standpoint, Sash, is this a good thing uh, for the UK? Because the UK obviously has had a a close relationship, weapons relationship. Indeed, at one point, the Saudis were supposed to be a Tempest partner. So were the Turks, by the way. But that didn't work out uh, so well, uh, or at least hasn't worked out so well. What does this mean, given that the UK has also, you know, also sharply dialed back uh, its support uh, for Saudi Arabia in the wake of Khashoggi, in the wake of Yemen, and the Saudis are no more popular in the UK, right? I mean, you mentioned that at Her, at her Majesty's funeral, Mohammed bin Salman
3: was not one yeah. of the guests. Yeah, I think that's right. But I I, I would draw a distinction between um, his personal position in the UK, which is, you know, probably not very welcome at Her Majesty's funeral, and the UK's attitude to Saudi Arabia, which is much less negative than the US's. You are, and i Apologies for the paraphrasing, but have been very, very focused on OPEC Plus and the decision to um, cut back on petrochemical production and hence to try to force prices up. That has no cut through in Europe whatsoever. Nobody, ca- nobody even. I mean, you know, OPEC didn't make didn't make page one, didn't even make page four of most um, European broadsheets. It was utterly unimportant because the European focus on petrochemicals is whether we are able to get any gas from Russia and if we're not what the hell do we do next? So the Saudis are seen as being the solution not the problem for Europe um, and hence European nations will um, tolerate MBS um, as part of making sure that we're on the right side of the Saudis. It's it's unpleasant, it's unfortunate but you know if you don't understand that you won't understand how Europeans behave. Um, so you know Chancellor Scholz of Germany went to uh, Saudi Arabia at the um, end of, I think it's the end of September, uh, very much to say, we want your gas, we want your oil. And what he took in return was a commitment to um, uh, raise uh, the uh, German arms export ban. And, uh, you know, there are reports from the French press that actually he immediately authorised the release of a big slug of spares for Eurofighter typhoons, which Germany had been holding up, because that was the quid pro quo. Um, if the U.S. doesn't export to Saudi, the U.K. will and France will, frankly, but the U.K. will definitely export to, to Saudi. Um, we need the business. We need the money. Um, and if we have to make a choice between Saudi and Iran, we'll back Saudi because we have done for 65 years. You've got to remember, the Saudis are buying the, the third generation of British combat aircraft. First was the right. lightning. Then was the tornado. Then was uh Irvine's typhoon. Um, yeah, you know, if we can get them on Tempest as well, that'll be great. It's not actually that important at the moment. Japan as an industrial uh, partner is way more important. Uh, but, you know, it would still be great to be able to sell to uh, the, Sa- the Saudis. And so, you know, this is one of those unfortunate areas where European and UK um, politics and industrial politics are diverging from the US. And it's actually not negotiable. Um, we need the business. We need, the, we need the, their, uh, their gas. Um, and, you know, that that's really where it, what it boils down to.
0: Um, R- Richard, uh, your sense on what the impact of this is and what an arms uh, embargo uh, would mean, uh, at least, you know, I mean, assuming that the United States just suspends the export of uh, US weapons, right? I mean, the United States also, as everybody knows, can extend a nuclear option if it wanted to and stop everybody else for, uh, from exporting as well. Um, there's no indication that that's uh, in, in in the cards necessarily. What's uh, the, the impact? Because, uh, you know, uh, Ron and Sash sort of gave us sort of a market sense, but would be interested in yours, uh, especially since combat aircraft are, you know, is uh, the largest, you know, single sort of financial element of a lot of uh, the arms transactions between the United States and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think I agree with everyone, that it's not incredibly meaningful. You know, I mean, they had just gone through a round of uh, equipment with U.S. combat aircraft and U.S. helicopters and whatever else. I think the perception was it's now Europe's turn, turn uh, hence, you know, interest in, 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 in Typhoon, uh, a second batch of Typhoon, which has been delayed now for, I think, way over 15, 20 years of memories or second batch, uh, second trench, technically. You know, I mean, obviously so much of U.S. weapon sales comes down to support and munitions, and that could make a difference. I don't think anyone's going to cut off support for the massive fleet of F-15s or Apaches or whatever else but could there be pullbacks in precision guided munition sales or whatever else? And that could impact things. And one thing about autocrats, you know, when it comes to uh, the flaws of the system, it's, it never comes down to morality because people frankly just don't really care that much. I mean, unless they go way over the line. Uh, it usually just comes down to strategic fecklessness. You saw that with Erdogan, of course, you know, I don't think, you know, this is why the Turkish Air Force is just so old, no one has told him, really have an alternative here, <laughs> you know, now that we're kicked out of F-35, we just have to go and work with the Europeans. There's nothing, no one coming to our rescue here, and we can't do it indigenously, and I think no one has had that conversation with MBS, so he might be, as you alluded before, he might be, well, maybe we should talk to the Chinese, or maybe we should talk to the Russians, or something equally dunderheaded. Um, in, in reality, he might ha- not have that much of a choice, Will we go that far in cutting him off? No, we'll just make things perhaps a bit difficult and send a few signals, and maybe just maybe that will have some impact in, on the margins of policy.
0: Um, I, well, I mean, right? I mean, the, the Saudi attitude towards this is, um, hey, you know, we can, you know, we can kick sand in your face because ultimately, you know, your system isn't going to cut us off. Um, you know, there's too much vested. Um, so why don't you just save the threats and just take my abuse? Uh, and let's just move on with this. Um, and, and there was that sense that the, uh, because once the administration does tie it to Russia, it becomes a lot more enforceable to say, ah, now we're going to go after all the Russian money that's flowed into Saudi Arabia. Uh, and unfortunately, other nations get pulled into this, whether it's the Emirates or the Qataris and everybody else, uh, which then kind of becomes a collective punishment thing. But again, the United States has been able to do that in the past uh, as well, right? I mean, if if, if we got the Swiss aboard uh, and all of these other countries to sort of crack down on Russian money and you guys are now serving and, and flaunting yourselves, not just as a haven, uh, but as a petro ally, that becomes a little problematic for the United States, right? Uh, to, to encourage others not to behave so badly. And so yeah, you know, under MBS, just, uh... the, the attitude is, screw you, I'm going to do whatever I want. Uh, And there's nothing you can do about it, which kind of has been the message a little bit.
1: That's exactly right. And if I could just add one more data point to that, you know, it's I don't know if anyone else noticed, but it's kind of an obscure stat. Uh, Business chat movements in the Middle East rose by like some ungodly amount, 50 percent or something year over year. And I can't help but wonder if that isn't uh, traffic coming out of uh, Russia and going to vacation homes in the UAE or something like that.
0: Uh, this would be an excellent place to segue, uh, to the national business, uh, aviation associations, annual, uh, business aviation conference and exhibition. Did you like that? Uh, the, uh, NBAA base, uh, otherwise known, uh, and Ron and Richard, you guys are, are going to be there really quickly, Richard, g- give us your sense first on sort of the commercial aviation news for the week, and then we'll end it with, uh, your guys sort of thoughts on, on AUSA and. Uh, and base next week. Walk us through it, right? Sully Sullenberger made it clear that he doesn't support a waiver for the 737 MAX, which was a very powerful uh, message from one of the, the nation's most prominent commercial uh, aviators. Um, and, and certainly a hero uh, managing to land his A320 in New York Harbor uh, after losing both his engines in a bird strike, which everybody knows about. Um, and, and then United was doing some messaging on 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 wide bodies. Sort of take us quickly through uh, the the commercial aviation storylines and give uh, Ron and and Sash an opportunity to comment on that before we go real quick to NBAA and AUSA takeaways.
1: Yeah, you know uh, mixed signals across the board on Max Ten. And max seven uh, certification requirements exemptions and whatever else from Boeing. Yes, the message from Sully uh, Sellenberger was pretty pretty strong, and he does uh, carry a lot of weight. Obviously, you've got the American Union going with uh, basically his side, and Southwest opposing it. This is going to come down to Congress and lobbying, and what happens in the midterms and whatever else. It's not going to be an easy fight for Boeing. And there's an awful lot riding on it. Um, in other news, you know, United coming out and saying. We're going to go with 100 or so wide bodies. You typically see this at the bottom of a market. And I think, you know, they're going to be the first, perhaps, uh, indication that we have at bottom. They're looking for a really good deal. One of the most interesting uh, aspects of that news flow was uh, uh, that they were possibly being offered some of the already built 787s and the 100 hundred and change that are in inventory, which of course says there are other people who uh, might not want them right now. Um, that to me is, is really interesting. We don't see a wide body recovery to the 2019 peak till after the end of the decade uh but nevertheless it is good to see some life coming back even if it's bottom feeding one aspect of it that was also interesting was some of them had replace 757 so even though united is already a significant h321 neo customer eh, at least somebody is replacing uh their 757s with actual honest to god wide bodies i haven't heard of that happening in a very long time and then i'm sure that's music to boeing's ears ron
2: yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I agree with everything you know that Richard said. I mean, it's it's nice to hear of some activity going on there. I think if you go back uh, a couple weeks ago to the Airbus Capital Markets Day, Airbus mentioned that you know they're starting to see some campaigns and stuff going on. I mean, they weren't you know crazy optimistic about um, you know sales in the in in the wide body market to just sort of take off, but they did say there was you know things going on and. Uh, so on and so forth. So this would just be another indicator that maybe there's some green shoots uh, in, in the wide market.
0: And about 737 max certification, right? Um, th- this is a a, um, a divisive issue, but it's not a commercial issue, is not it? Because we have made that tie-in before, but this isn't really a commercial issue, is it? Th- this genuinely is a safety issue for a lot of the aviators that's, that you've talked to.
2: Yeah, that's that's my sense that um, you know, particularly with you know, the APA, uh, they're you know, in earnest, it's just a safety issue that, you know, it's, it's an airplane that's been described when it's gone into the modes that um, have caused problems in the past, that it's a real handful, um, and that the system would help alleviate that. Um, you know, my sense is that, you know, for the APA, this is coming truly from uh, a place of trying to make the flying public more safe, as opposed to any other view that you know, would suggest that this has to do with you know, commercial reasons and you know, Southwest flying sevens and American not. And my sense is it has nothing to do with that. Uh, and and to be candid, maybe this would get me in trouble. I mean, airline unions don't have a history of um, helping out airline management. That's <laughs> generally not what we've seen in this industry. So um, it's you know, there would be a complete
0: turnaround with the entire history of between labor and management in the airline industry. A very, very good uh, historical point. Uh, Sash, is there anything you want to add uh, real quick to this before we quickly uh, go to NBAA and AUSA with uh, with uh, Ron and, and Richard?
3: Yeah, I'll just come back to the, the United Widebody story. Um, I mean, it's, it's just worth highlighting. United has an order for 45 Airbus A350-900s. Now, uh, it's not an order they terribly wanted. From memory, I think they inherited it. Um, and they clearly have had second thoughts about it. It has been deferred into the second half of the next decade, but it's going to be quite interesting because if they come back now with a um, a big wide body order, um, and particularly a, a wide body order that replaces some Boeing 777s sometime out, um, that's going to really you know raise raise the temperature of this on the this deferred A three fifty nine hundred order because the three fifty nine hundred or indeed if they wanted to convert them to. 351,000s would be a, a drop in uh for the Boeing 777 um, in almost any uh, any mark. Uh, and I think that Airbus will, you know, gently remind them of that and then probably try to steer them to uh, various other models of uh their wide bodies particularly 330neos uh, as well. I think it's going to be a very very hot fought uh, contest. And I think that if uh, they were to order wide bodies from a competitor and continue to defer the uh, the A350 900s. So I think Airbus would have some significant grounds for um, uh, for, for complaint on this one.
0: Um, we, we've got less than five minutes left, and I want to go into a little bit of a lightning round. Ron and Richard, this one will involve you. Sorry, uh, Sash, but uh, both Ron and Richard, you guys were at uh, AUSA. Uh, obviously, one of the big storylines uh, was the expectation that the Flora, that the United States Army would make the future long-range assault aircraft award. Uh, obviously, Bell, uh, with uh, our sponsor, with the uh, 280 Valor going up against Boeing and Sikorsky, or I should say Sikorsky and Boeing team together uh, on the compound coaxial uh, defiant uh aircraft a little bit of a delay by a couple of weeks uh, in that decision but sort of more broadly what were the interesting takeaways you you guys uh had richard start us off and, and then ron want to get your sense and then at the end we'll uh, uh listen to what you guys have to say about what you expect from nbaa's uh base go ahead richard
1: yeah you know i think uh- Ron and I discussed this last week. What we expected was what we got. You know, just a heavy emphasis on the service needing to reinvent itself for the, um, you know, the Asia Pacific theater, which means far, which means hypersonics, long range fires, everything like that. Growing emphasis on digitization, of course, the importance of supply chain management, the importance of uh, logistics management. That I guess was no surprise because uh, you know, lots of people burn up munition stocks as evidence in the the Russia's war in Ukraine. but the army is kind of at the forefront of that. We were talking before about tank and artillery munitions. So no surprise, a strong emphasis on the logistical aspect of war too. Ron?
2: Yeah, I, I, I agree with all the, the points that, that Richard made. I, I would say, you know, from an a investor perspective, because there, there were investors uh, at the conference, uh, there was a, a huge focus on Flora. That's kind of really what everybody was um, there to try to, uh, look through the tea leaves and see if they could you know, figure out something um, which I don't think they could but um, anyway that was a big focus in the investment community and then another thing uh, that, that came up at least you know in the, our conversations was pretty much uh, every conversation we had where the company started with some sort of preamble around ESG you know we don't do this we don't do that just kind of reminding the investment community that you know, there's the list, the naughty list of things that you shouldn't do, and we don't do that. Um, so there was, that kind of surprised me, because that really hadn't been the case in the past in these, in these kind of meetings. And then maybe the third was a, a discussion on, you know, what lessons learned
0: in the Ukraine
2: um, can you take right. away and actually apply to the future? So,
0: yeah. Richard, uh, did it strike you as, and or either of you as, you know, the if you think about the investment the Army wants to make in this space layer to control long-range fires sounds awfully duplicative of a lot of the capabilities that we've already developed for long-range uh, strike, although the Army makes the case, hey, you know, we have to have this, whereas others say, hey, the National Reconnaissance Office does this, Space Force does this, indeed, the US Air Force does it. Um, you know, did, what did you guys make of, of that kind of storyline? Uh, you know, as, as important as long range fires are in the Pacific, this this sort of the degree of investment that might be needed uh, for that struck some as being a little bit redundant.
1: Yeah, no question that there is a fair, it's always been that way, you know, I mean, and people have this perception that it's about parochialism or, you know, just a, a need to avoid being cut off by, you know, some hostile Other defense agency or service, I don't think it's that at all. Of course, it's merely control of budget. That's what it comes down to. And uh, you know, no one wants to be marginalized. And given the importance of information warfare and targeting data and whatever else, the idea of a much higher percentage of the defense budget going to that, and the army not getting a share of it, I think is probably anathema to them.
0: Ron, anything you want to add, or do you want to take us to uh, what are some of the storylines you expect to hear from NBA next week in Orlando?
2: Yeah, maybe, maybe I should just jump to NBA because I was dead on with that. Um, yeah, I mean, we're in a business jet market that's moving from one that was, I think, aptly described by several folks maybe a year ago as white hot to one that's still hot. Um, and like the commercial aerospace market is inverted in the point of view that you have demand still far outstripping supply largely because of the supply chain issues. Uh, you know uh, how can I say it uh, private aviation more so than any other segment in aviation um, you want to really make hay when the sun shines because you want to get those airplanes out because you don't know how long that cycle is going to last for um, so anyway I think what we'll find at uh, NBAA is you know how good it still is I think you know most of the brokers will not have many aircraft out of the static last year at NBAA the first at uh, first NBAA post-COVID um, there really weren't many aircraft out of the static because nobody had anything to show. Um, my expectation is that's probably going to be the same this year. However, things will be a little cooler than last year. When you look at, you know, inventories of airplanes available for sale, it's picked up a little bit, but you're still well below long-term trends. And, and I, I think the broader debate will be, um, you know, where, where, where are we? Where is this industry now? You know, are, are we coming out of COVID, we being the industry as a permanent beneficiary of a bigger pool of users or is it somehow going to you know kind of revert back to what it was before? Um, so I think, I think that's, that's a very important thing. <clears throat> the progress on there's you know several different aircraft uh, out there right now and various forms of flight tests and so on and so forth. I think that will be a thing that that will be at the show. I think another thing we saw this uh, over at eBase, the European show, electric, a focus on electric aircraft, a focus on eVTOL. Uh, I w- would imagine we will see that. Again, uh, here, uh, focus on uh, EV tall electric aircraft. And I think it's not lost on anybody in private aviation that um, there is a sustainability challenge for the industry. That you know, if you look at the piece of global carbon that this industry produces, it's actually teensy weensy, but it generates right. giant headlines. And I don't think that's lost on anybody. So I think there'll be a continued discussion about that um, at the show.
0: We've got about 30 seconds left, go ahead, uh, Richard.
1: Yeah, you know, just to echo Ron, it's about sustainability and innovation and avoiding negative headlines. The only thing I would you know, add is on the, on the subject of how hot is the market, we've been pretty restrained in terms of production rates and taken advantage instead uh, of the market conditions for, to get better pricing. So if something softens first, is it going to be expectations for production rates or is it going to be pricing? And uh, that's something you're going to hear discussed. But as Ron says, right now, things are still pretty good, even though in terms of availability, in terms of utilization, there are just a couple little wispy clouds in the sky to watch.
0: Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope you guys have a great day, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much and bon voyage uh, to you all. Uh, Thanks, Vago.
3: Wouldn't be a weekend without it. Yeah, thanks very much, Vago. Enjoyed it a lot, Vago. Thank you.